So over the last several weeks, if you've been here with us, and if not, that is quite all right, we've been looking at the Christmas, the meaning, significance of Christmas, actually through some different kinds of passages than uh, the typical gospel narrative of the birth of Christ. And what we've been trying to land the plane on, so to speak, is the fact that uh, Jesus, when he was born to this world, Christmas is only really significant when he's born into your life. You see, it's a historic fact that Jesus was born, right? We can prove that both biblically and extra historical documents. Uh, but but that's, not, that's not the significance of Christmas, of his birth. It only really becomes significant when you and I choose, whoever you are today, online or here in the room, if you choose to allow Christ to be born into your life. That's when Christmas means something. And we've been looking at what that means in specific terms according to God's word. And as we've walked through this story, his story together, it is my prayer, truly, and I mean this with all my heart, it is my prayer that we begin to allow his story to become our history his story to become our story. And when you do that, according to what we've looked at the first week, you'll experience his grace. When you and I do that, according to God's word, you will experience redemption and why that is so meaningful and significant. Well, today we're going to look at his story of hope, how the hope of Christ can become your hope, not wishful thinking, but actual hope. And then on Christmas Eve, we'll look together at what this life is, what it means, what is the everyday practical implication of Christ born in our lives. So let's look at Titus. Again, not a, a normal Christmas passage, but nonetheless is centered on the birth of Christ and him coming to us. And I want you to notice something. I don't know that I've ever again used this passage for this season of the year before. First time for everything, right? And I love what Paul does. Of course, he didn't need my permission, but nonetheless, God inspired him to do something that I think is different, but also it just got my attention as I was studying it this week. He contrasts a life of a person without Christ before Christ versus after Christ. He shows us the reality of what we were when you have not allowed Christ to be born in your life versus the hope of what you can be. And so I want you and I to notice that contrast between these two types of people, if you will, your life, actually my life, before and during knowing Christ, allowing him to be born into our lives. Look at verse 3. Begin there, Titus chapter 3. And if you can't find Titus, keep flipping past uh, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and it is right after that book towards the end of the New Testament. And it says, Paul says this about the believers of that day. He says, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And here's a good but, but. It's a very good but. He says, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, the birth of Christ, he saved us 
not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of what? Eternal life. Now let's go to the first part of the story, and that's the reality of what you and I were, and we would still be without Christ being born into our life on a personal basis. And Paul, when he says, at one time we too were foolish, guess what? He's including himself in that we there. He's not saying you, he's saying we. How do I know that? Because Paul said at one time in one of his writings, I'm the chief among what? Sinners. I'm the worst of the worst. And if you know anything about Paul, I won't get off into Paul very far uh, to this morning, but you know much about Paul. He's not lying. He was the worst of the worst. He was very good about being bad, so to speak. He was a terrorist trying to kill the church. And God got a hold of his heart and life, as you well know, and he became a church planter, a church builder, as opposed to destroying the body of Christ. Now, I love how the Message Bible, you'll see this up on the screen, paraphrases verse 3. Look at this. It says, It wasn't so long ago that we ourselves were stupid and stubborn, Easy marks for sin, ordered every which way by our, our glands going around with a chip on our so shoulder, hated and hating back. I thought, wow, I could not have paraphrased that verse better. And he's exactly right. Just at the point that I start getting tempted, listen, just, this is all free right here. Just at the point that I get in a position of wanting to judge another, somebody who especially does not know Christ, and I see the dysfunction and the destruction in their families and their marriages and all that, just when I start getting judgmental, I need to remember that could very well be me, but for the grace of God, right? Come on, are you there? That's what Paul's trying to remind these believers of. Don't get cocky. It's all God's grace. It is because of who he is that you have this life. Not a perfect life, but a life worth living. And I, so I want to pause just for a moment and dig into, I want you to notice the downward spiral that Paul refers to when you have a person with no hope. You have a person or a life without the birth of Christ in it on a personal basis. Without Christ, there is no hope, but there is a downward spiral. And listen, even a believer can get back into this downward spiral at any point that you and I choose not to follow Christ. So first of all, he starts with a dark heart. He starts with your thinking, your process of perspective, if you will, and he calls it foolish. Now stop for a moment because that word foolish does not mean lack of intelligence or lack of knowledge. It's not stupid as we tend to think of that word. The word foolish refers instead of a lack of intelligence or ability, it refers to stubborn will. You ever been stubborn? Hello, I see at least five of you in the room that are as stubborn as I am, right? Come on, we can be very stubborn. And that word means it is a stubborn will that only rejects the sovereignty of God. In other words, you're trying to be God. 
You are trying to take the place of God in your life. That's what, in essence, foolishness is here. And it also refers in this passage to live, as we'll see, to live by impulse. Live by how you feel. And when you and I do that, guess what comes next? Notice the spiral down. Next comes disobedience. Disobedience to God. When you try to be God, the only one to obey is who? Self. It all becomes about self. Then comes being deceived. You're going to be going down the rat hole and you're not even going to know it. It's the frog in the kettle. Y'all know that analogy, right? You put the frog in the kettle and you, you turn up the, hot, the heat slowly. The frog doesn't notice. He gets used to and even probably likes, I guess, the warm water, and then eventually he boils to death. That's what happens in people's lives all the time. They're destructive and dysfunctional, and sometimes they don't even know it. Listen, our courts, our, our civil courts especially, are, are packed full of families that are destroying themselves, marriages that are, are paying a price, and kids that are paying a price. You don't have to look far to know that this is true. When you are foolish, these things are going to come next. It doesn't stay within you. It will come out in your life. And it's only, look at what he says, that when you and I, without Christ, the hope of Christ, when we started with foolishness, we will end up with what? Enslavement. You and I will be enslaved by our passions, by our impulses. Have you ever met a person that lives by impulse and it goes well in the long term? I've met people that live by impulse and it never goes well in the long term. They end up with more debt than they can ever come, come out of. They end up destroying things they never thought they would destroy, including people in their lives. And on and on it goes. So Paul is telling us that this spiral is real. It's real life. It's not ethereal. And without the hope of Christ, we will do a lot of damage. But notice that the damage does not stop with yourself. You've heard me talk about this before. When you throw a rock in the middle of the pond, what happens? It's a ripple effect, right? I've never seen a rock just lay on the surface and kind of slowly go down to the water, right? Every time I throw the rock in the water, there's always the ripple effect. And that is true on a personal basis. When you and I live as a fool and we ultimately become enslaved, Paul points out in verse 3, look at it close, that it goes from destructive heart to destructive relationships. Dark heart to destructive relationships. How do I know that? Look, he tells you in verse 3. He says, without the hope of Christ, without allowing Christ to be born into your life, here's what comes next. We live, notice past tense. He's saying, you believers, don't get cocky because you used to be this way. This used to be you. We lived how? Look at it close. In malice, in envy being hated and hating one another. So it's now bled over into your personal relationships with people. Now that word malice, it, it, it could be translated and understood as malignant depravity. Now I don't know about you, I don't even have to know what those words mean to know that it can't be good, right? <laughs> malignant depravity. I mean, that, that's like a cancer eating you from the inside out. And that's what malice is. It is the feeding of anger, hanging on to bitterness. It is allowing that to eat you up from the inside out, and it will never stop there, it, and it doesn't here. If you notice, he says we live not only in malice, but with what? Envy. Envy there means spite. It means jealousy, and it typically is used in the New Testament most of the time as envious of somebody who has something you don't. 
who has an advantage that you do not. Now listen, let's pause just for half a second here. You can live one or two ways in me too. I can live grateful for what I have and what God has blessed me with, or I can live angry about what I don't have, right? Come on. I can constantly look around at what others have, because everybody's going to, you look long enough, you're going to find somebody has more than you do, right? Has some kind of advantage you weren't given, or whatever it is. And so you and I can focus on what we don't have, or we can live in the hope of Christ and focus on the blessings and what we do have. You see, when I focus on what I don't have, I quite often miss what I do have. Is that making sense? I'm blind to how abundantly blessed I am regardless of the timing and things going on in life. And so my point simply is this. Paul is telling us very clearly that, that this kind of hopelessness apart from Christ doesn't stay within you. It will bleed out every time. It will have that ripple effect into your marriage, your home life, your relationships. It will destroy all kinds of people and things in your path. We're all connected. There's no person that's an island, right? That's how this works. But notice what he wraps up, verse 3. The spiral downward ends up with hate. We are hated. Isn't that an awful place to be? But there are some marriages that that's what this is. We are hated and hating one another. And by the way, we tend to think of hatred as this active kind of thing, like we're you know doing something to somebody. But you know what the Bible says hatred can be? The Bible holds up hatred as, as the holding back of love. You can passively hate people, right? Come on, are you, are you with me? In fact, I like what one author said about that very topic and this verse when he says, you'll see this on the screen too, he says, we readily overlook and ignore the expression of hate through the withdrawal or the withholding of love. This may well be the most common and devastating form of hate, according to this author, all the more pernicious because it can even be done under the guise of righteousness. I'm walking with God, and I'm withholding love. Hello, no, you're not. When I'm walking with Christ, I love even the unlovable. Are you there? I... I will be inspired because of the hope of Christ in me to love those that are difficult to love. And, and I will love them because of Christ, period. Not because of something I can get. You see, that's the opposite of hate. Not loving somebody is hate, and we don't tend to look at it quite that way sometimes. So what's the, the application, though, so far? What is the Christmas gift, so to speak, First of all, Paul is saying, consider two things. Consider that the greatest Christmas gift, my friend, you could ever receive is Jesus Christ himself. He is the only gift that's going to transform your life over time, period. I don't care how good your Christmas gifts are or ever have been. He's it. And so it is only him that will transform your life. And that's what Paul is trying to get them to remember by looking back at what they were before the hope of Christ. Number two, consider that who you were and what you could have become if Christ had not been born into your life. Again, you've heard, I just said it. The moment, and believe me, it is easy to do. There's some easy targets in our culture. The moment I stand in my neighborhood or at the grocery store or anywhere else, and I pass judgment on this dysfunctional family going on next to me or wherever it may be, 
I'm forgetting that's me. <laughs> I'm forgetting that because of the gift of Christ in my own life, that is me. And so I have no place and no right to judge. I ought to have actually compassion and be inspired to love. So let's look at the good part of the story. Now we looked at the hard part. Look at the rest of it, and I'll move a little quicker here. Verses 4 through 7, and he says, but. Verse 4 is one of those powerful verses in the New Testament. But God. Don't you love how he just dug into who we are without Christ, the hope of Christ in our life, and he lays it out in no uncertain terms and, and doesn't beat around any of the bushes. But then he says, but God. Isn't that great news? There's lots of but gods in the scripture, and this is one of them. He said, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, when he was born into this world, there's this opportunity for him to be born into your life. And when he's born into your life, you're going to experience two things according to God's word. You're going to be transformed by two things. Number one, you're going to be transformed by the fact that he is kind and he is loving. Now, that word kindness, by the way, doesn't just refer to God's doing kind things. It refers to who he is. It emphasizes where it comes from. It comes from his heart. God, in his essence, is kind, not because you or I deserve it. He just is. That is who he is, and that is how he is towards us. And Christ, listen, Christ, the birth of Jesus, is the proof of that. God with us is the proof of that. And then he says, love. You'll experience his love when he's born into your life. By the way, that word love is where we get the name of the city, Philadelphia, which means city, y'all know, city of brotherly love. Now, I'm not going to swear that they hold up to that billing or not. I have no idea. But what the word means here, the word is used here, it's referring to God's deep passion for you. God doesn't just know about you. He loves you deeply. I, I, would, I would parallel that with a child. How many parents are in the room? you got at least one kid. A lot of us do. We either raised them or we're in the process of doing so. I can't imagine... Regardless of what boneheaded thing any of my kids might do, the same way my parents felt about me, I believe, regardless of what they ever may do or mistake they may make or any disappointment or anger or frustration I may feel about my kids, you know what? I never stop loving them. I never stop loving my kids. Why? Because they're mine. Because I love them. I don't have to reason for a performance to love them. Isn't that good news? Same thing with God. This word means he loves you, period. That's awesome news. Because I know I don't learn the love of God in my life. Do you? The answer is no, just in case you didn't know. And he says, but when his kindness and love of God... Now look at the second part, verse 5. He saved us not because of the righteous things we have done. In other words, he's not come to you because of who you are. He's come to you because of who he is. But because of his what? His mercy. And that word mercy means he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So number one, the, the hope we have in Christ and who we can be and can become is a transformed person. 
And, and he tells us that at the end of verse 5, if you notice, and he says, he saved us through the washing of the rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. What does all that mean? That means he transforms you. That means he wants to do a renovation on you from the inside out. But you listen, you've got to allow him to be born into your life and quit just going, that's a really cool story in history. Because Jesus was born into history, there's no doubt. But he came to be born into your life. And when you and I allow him each new day to be born into our lives, we will experience his kindness and love, among many other things. He will transform you over time. How? One day at a time by taking his lead in your life. That is the Christ born in your life. But there's the last part of the story I, wanna, I want you to notice. First of all, he says, consider two things. Consider the fact that Christ is the greatest gift you'll, you'll ever know. And that if you had not met him, if you don't know him, what you'll always be or what you would be without him. And then he says, embrace genuine faith in Christ and let him do what only he can do, transform you from the inside out. Now look at the tail end of the story. I'm going to wrap it up with this. Verses 6 and 7, Paul saves the best for last. And by the way, if you haven't noticed, Paul sometimes he just speaks in one big long sentence. And one, verse 3 to 7 is one big long sentence, and we're breaking it up. And in verse 6, he says, Whom he has poured, God's Spirit, he's poured out generously through Jesus Christ on us. He is all in, my friend. When he showed up in that manger, and he showed up on that cross, he is all in. That's what that basically means. He is generous to you every day. Now, whether you're going to know that or not is whether you're letting them be born in your life. Now, look at verse 7. He says, so that we will be heirs of Christ. Isn't that awesome? He says, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become what? Heirs having what? Hope of eternal life. Now, let me wrap it up with this. There's three key words that show you what it means to be an heir of Christ. Number one is justified. Number two is hope. And number three is life. Let's look at how those three words are connected to one another to wrap up this morning. First of all, justified means that you are deemed innocent. You ever met a person, I'm not going to ask you if you've been that person, you ever met somebody who has been and is living with regrets? I've, I've met people even going into their last breaths of their day and they're just wrapped up with regret. You know what the good news is? You don't have to. Because of Christ, you can be completely rendered innocent. And when you stand and I stand before Christ, your sin is thrown as far as the east is from the west. There is no guilt in the presence of Christ. You just got to be in the presence of Christ and accept the fact that he's justified you. You are forgiven completely. You are redeemed. It is done. So quit living reg with regret. Go deal with regret. That's a freebie too. Instead of living in the past, go deal with it and accept the forgiveness that you have in Christ, regardless of what that person may or may not choose to forgive you. That's beside the point. Christ has done it. You're justified. Number two, you have hope. We've talked about this before. There's a big difference between wishful thinking and hope, right? Come on. You may wish that, I don't know, tooth fairy is real. Or you may wish for X, Y, and Z and have no reason to believe it. That's wishful thinking. That's not hope. But our hope is in Christ. 
And your hope is only as good as your source of the hope. And this Jesus came to us and he was born into this world. He lived and he died on the cross and he resurrected from the dead. He fulfilled endless number of prophecies, hundreds of them in scripture before he was even finished. And he proved that he is who he is. People died and were willing to die because they saw firsthand who he was and who he is. Our hope is in Christ. It's not in a fairy tale. It's not in something I want. It's in him. And so a picture of your heir, how you know you're an heir of Christ, you know, number one, you're living in his justification. You are forgiven and you're not living piled on and carrying the baggage of yesterday. You have let that baggage go. And when you pack it back on, you let it go again, right? You with me? And then you will know hope. And then the last word he uses is the phrase eternal life. Now, it's been a while we've talked about this before. The eternal means what you imagine, eternal and we focus on that word eternal, but life is what describes and defines eternal. You see, that word life means life as God has it. It does not mean this horrible life forever. Thank you, God, right? It is a transformed life. It is a life worth living. And so that's what it means to be an heir of Jesus Christ. So the hope we have in who we can be is a transformed person. The hope we have is a life that is actually worth living. So our final application is consider that he's the greatest gift you'll ever receive. Consider what you could be apart from him. Don't be judgmental of others. In other words, embrace the genuine faith that transform your, and transforms your life. And finally, the call is to embrace the hope of this life and the life to come that is found in Christ and Christ alone. In other words, let him be born into your life. And if you're a follower of Christ and you accepted him, you placed your faith in him and you've drifted away from that birth in your life, get back to it. Let him be born into your life each new day. I think I may have shared this some time ago. If, if I have, you can forgive me for forgetting, but this, this is an amazing story. There's a level of skiers that some of which... They're, they're adrenaline junkies, and they call what you're looking at, that's an actual picture, this is called tree skiing. Now, I don't know about you, but skiing and trees just don't kind of match up in my brain. You know, when I used to snow ski a long time ago, there were big old wide open spaces for a reason, because you don't want to run into a tree. But some people want the fresh virgin snow, the powder nobody's ever skied in kind of deal. And they do what? They go way up and they look for a tree stands of spruce or pine in the mountains and they start tree skiing. Now, the, the goal, as you can imagine, or the, the, the key to tree skiing is don't hit a tree. <laughs> but the experts will tell you when you're tree skiing, the worst thing you can do is look at the trees. What you got to focus on is the space between the trees because that's what you want to obviously fly through. In fact, one expert said, don't stare at what you don't want to hit. And I thought, I'm never going to tree ski because I've got some kind of sanity in my life. But I thought, there's a parallel there to our lives in crisis or not. I don't know about you, but sometimes life feels like I'm tree skiing. It feels like there's just trees flying by me so fast. And, and I can do one of two things when it comes to those moments in life. 
I can start staring at the problems, staring at the challenges, or I can keep my focus on Christ. I can stare at the trees, and I'm probably going to hit one if I do, or I can look for the open spaces. Let Christ lead you through the open spaces. I like how one author kind of sums up this faith in Christ and our hope that we have in him. And he says it this way. He says, faith binds man, mankind, to Christ. Hope sets this faith open to the comprehensive future of Christ. Hope is therefore the inseparable companion of faith. Without faith's knowledge of Christ, hope becomes a utopia and remains hanging in the air. It's just wishful thinking. But without hope, faith falls to pieces, becomes a faint-hearted and ultimately a dead faith. It is through faith that man or mankind finds the path of true life, but it is only hope that keeps them on the path. So the question I'll leave you with is very simple. Are you and I going to live as if Christ was just simply born in history? Or are we going to allow him to be born into our lives? Are you and I as believers going to go back to what life was like before the hope of Christ? Or are we actually going to embrace and follow where the hope of Christ leads one day at a time? You see, that's when Christmas matters, right? When Christ is truly born into your life. So if you're here and you've not allowed him to be born in your life to start with, I'm going to pray that you do today. I'm going to pray you take that step of faith or you come speak to me or any number of people that would be glad to share with you the difference that Christ has made in our lives. We're not perfect. That is quite clear. You spend five minutes with us here at New Hope. We're as imperfect as they come, right? Come on, myself included. But we do have the hope of Christ in us. And we can tell you why, why that is so meaningful and significant. So if you're interested in that story, come see me right after the service. If you're a follower of Christ, a New Hope member, and you've drifted away from that hope, my, my challenge to you is get back to it. Let Christmas be that time where you re-embrace the hope of Christ and you quit looking at the trees and let him lead you through the spaces of the trees. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in our life that just does not stop. Thank you that you pursued us in the first place. Thank you that we are hopeless, but yet you offer us a hope that in Christ that changes everything. Praise you, Father, we, at this time of year as we celebrate Christmas, that you were willing to be born into our mess, be born into our darkness, to love us like you do. Thank you for the grace and the love that just gives us, if we'll trust you one day at a time, a life worth living, regardless of what the challenges may be. Father, may we know the hope of Christ as a day-to-day -day reality in life. It's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen.